0: Good morning, dear Intriguer, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler for a rapid-fire recap of the world's top stories. It's all coming up. John, how are you? Doing very well, Ethan. I'm a little saddened to see you've ditched the mustache. I have. Yeah, our listeners wouldn't know that. It was my birthday yesterday uh, and I figured I hadn't seen my face in a year and I wanted to see what it looked like. And to tell you the truth, John, I'm pretty disappointed.
1: Well, I, I, I'm disappointed too because one of the, the great pleasures of these podcasts is getting to see that beautiful tash that you had there. But <laughs> lest this become a, a fairly creepy podcast. So Give <laughs> yeah, it a it couple there.
0: days, yeah. All right. Well, enough about me, John. Today's all about you. So we're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, We're going to put your skills to the test. We got five stories, five different regions of the globe uh, for you to give us all your best takes. So let's just take it alphabetically. We'll go Africa, Asia, Europe, the Middle East and finally down to South America. How does that sound?
1: Sounds good. I give no warranty to the quality of the takes, but let's give it a go. <laughs> I,
0: I will. The takes will be pretty poor. Uh, but <laughs> 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 All right. So uh, we'll start you off in Africa, where we've been following Niger, uh, where members of the, of the military detained and later deposed the democratically elected president a little more than three weeks ago. John, what's the latest here?
1: Yeah, this one, this one's got me fascinated just because it was a classic story of you know all over the news, and then not a lot in the news since then. Um, but the latest is that the the coup leaders don't seem to be messing around. There was there was a period of time where negotiations between the former president Muhammad um, Bazoum, and the coup leaders um, they were kind of negotiating for you know transition of power or what would happen to to the former president. Um, and then there was a period where they were negotiating between regional leaders of countries and ECOWAS, the like regional bloc and the coup leaders. There was a period where all of that seemed kind of positive and like there might be a, a resolution, um, you know, a return to civilian style rule. But those hopes are, I would say, gone now. The coup leaders have appointed a, a prime minister um, who's been making visits to you know, friendlier countries in the region, military-led countries like Chad. Um, and so, then, you know, they're trying to entrench their legitimacy um, before there's a chance to remove them. Um, they've also re- arrested and replaced many of the former president's cabinet and cut ties with France, which was obviously the former colonial power in the region, um, as well as Nigeria and Togo. Um, they've said they plan to prosecute the former president now um, for high treason. And if he's convicted, uh, he could face the death penalty. So things have kind of solidified,
0: I would say. Wow. Well, so we've talked about how central Niger has been in Western and regional efforts to respond to extremism in the Sahel, and, you know, and how determined uh, Niger's former allies are to not lose the democratically elected partner, how do we expect nigeria's neighbors to respond
1: yeah i think that's the right question because that's the big question mark so to speak um after the coup i think leaders from that regional bloc i mentioned ECOWAS, um, or ecowas i don't know how to pronounce that acronym but they they issued a like an ultimatum that you don't see a lot of in diplomacy. Um, they basically said to the coup leaders, step down um, and allow the former president to come back to power or we will kind of invade and force that to happen. That that doesn't happen in such stark language very often. Um, the deadline for that ultimatum has come and gone um, and uh, regional leaders, um, they've met again. Um, And they met yesterday, I think, to try and build a consensus around a new strategy. Obviously, the the ultimatum came and went without them invading. So that doesn't put them in a very strong position. Um, And, and, you know, given how many other military led regimes there are in that region um, and how sympathetic they have already been towards Niger's new leaders, the coup leaders, um, I think there's a real risk that a military intervention could spark a, a wider war or at least a, a long and protracted and uncertain military conflict. Um, but on Thursday, uh, the leaders of ECOWAS promised to send troops in if if diplomacy fails, so they kind of stuck to their guns. I think we're at a very critical point right now. There's this idea of like maybe the junta can consolidate power and things will settle down and, you know, they've reached out to our our... Uh, famous friends over in uh, the Wagner Group uh, to kind of help them yep. prepare their military uh, in in case. Uh, there They've is a, been
0: doing personal security for for intrigue for a while now.
1: Yeah, and obviously, um, you know, I, I'm I'm a very important person that has many threats on my life, <laughs> and I turned to the Russians for some reason. <laughs> no, but but more seriously, the Wagner Group is helping um, the, the 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 coup leaders to kind of prepare for a potential intervention. You know, to to solidify defences. So, I think there's a you know, if that happened, there's a pretty decent chance that Niger could really become a a. a, a a real source of insecurity, and 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 even potentially a war in the near uh, future.
0: One to watch for sure, John. I gotta say, this is going better than expected. We were pretty nervous <laughs> going into this, but you're one for one. All right, have on, faith, to have faith. <laughs> on to Asia. On to Asia. Well, at least the protagonists in this story are from Asia, but it takes place just 100 kilometers from where I am sitting right now.
1: Yeah, I know. This is one I insisted on talking about because um, I think it's fascinating and, and probably a, the importance is not quite grasped by most. Um, but this story, to bury the lead a bit, is um, that uh, today, so this is Friday, um, the leaders of Japan, uh, Japan and South Korea, they're heading up to Camp David. So about, what do you say, about 100 miles from from D.C.? 100
0: kilometers. So 100 60, kilometers. 60 miles. I actually just saw three uh uh presidential helicopters flying over my apartment so they you know, they may 60 be miles from there. he
1: could get in a car couldn't he <laughs> what a waste what a waste of the, what a waste uh, of fuel
0: pray for the commuters if president biden ever tried to travel 60 60 kilometers 60 miles in a car that's a good point that's a very good point yeah so anyway <laughs> um the japanese and south korean leaders are up
1: in uh, maryland uh, at camp david with president biden for a trilateral summit for folks who aren't kind of aware of what camp david is it's kind of like the u.s president's country retreat um maybe sort of similar to checkers for our our uk listeners um it's this place that they kind of use for um some of the biggest moments in diplomatic history you know the, the idea that you can bring world leaders in for like Negotiations outside of the public eye a little bit, um, you know. For example, it's where Egypt agreed to recognize Israel in exchange for Israeli withdrawal from the Sinai Peninsula uh, back in back in two thousand. Ehud Barak met Yasser Arafat there. Um, that was the Palestinian leader and the Israeli leader, obviously. Um, so to bring uh, Prime Minister Kashida of Japan and President Yoon of South Korea together at Camp David is symbolic as well, uh, and it shows that President Biden is pretty serious and optimistic. That their ties can, um, you know, get a lot better.
0: Remind us, John, why does South Korea and Japan, you know, need this sort of help in sorting out their relationship to begin with?
1: Yeah, that's a very complicated question, and we're doing a rapid fire round here. Um, so, best or simplest, just to say that Japan and South Korea have some very long-standing and very deep grievances, um, historical grievances. Um, but you know, nothing forces two sides to come together and put aside their differences faster than a bigger External threat. Um, and that's what Japan and South Korea are doing to address the challenges posed by China and North Korea on their doorstep. Um, uh, we've seen all sorts of ad hoc kinds of cooperation and, and, and initiatives in, in recent months. Um, there were trilateral military drills, and that means like the US, South Korea, and Japan working together. Um, and uh, there have been high level meetings between um, the three sides as well, the defense ministers. But the Camp David summit, I think, could be a real chance to sort of very f- so formalize that process, solidify that process, right? Make it kind of official in in a, a very grand way um, and maybe even put it on paper if, if there's something signed at the end of all this. Um, you know, I think I should add that President Yoon's effort to improve relations with Japan um, is still pretty unpopular with many South Koreans. Um, it's a fragile situation, very fragile. And, and that's before you realize that China is very good at stoking divisions and driving wedges between Japan and South Korea. Um, they're very good at reminding South Korea of Japan's horrific imperial history on the Korean peninsula. Uh, so, you yeah, know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a flexible situation. But, I, you know, just to finish this off, I did see earlier in the week that Dennis Wilder, who was responsible for trilateral relations during the second Bush administration, and then Danny Russell, who was Obama's expert on, on the region, um, they both emphasized how big a deal it is that these, that this summit is even happening. Um, I, I think Mr. Wilder tweeted or what do we call that now? X'd. Ext- <laughs> Posted on X. <laughs> X. God, yeah. He, he he posted on X. Um, and I'll, I'll just quote real quick. He said, "I find the camp that the meeting at Camp David mind blowing. We could barely get South Korean and Japanese leaders to meet with us in the same room. So I think that gives you a, a taste for how
0: big a deal of this, uh, big a bigger deal this is." You're breezing through, John. Unbelievable. So now let's move <laughs> on to Europe, where tensions are rising in the Black Sea. Yeah, they are. Like
1: tensions could get any higher in that part of the world, but somehow they are. Um, so to recap this one, Ethan, this is uh, last month, Russia suspended its uh, participation in the Black Sea grain deal. We covered it briefly on on the podcast. Um, that deal had been allowing ships carrying Ukrainian food exports, particularly grain to pass through the Black Sea and out into the, the rest of the world, um, through the Bosphorus Strait uh in, in Turkey there, um, Istanbul. Uh you know, grain is obviously it goes without saying too important for both Ukraine's wartime revenues and for the rest of the world that needs to eat. Um, and you know, they a lot of these, a lot of these grain exports go to parts of the world that are war-torn and, and food insecure. So really important stuff. Um, they've, been, they've been trying to find workarounds for Russia pulling out of this grain deal. Um, last week, Ukraine announced that it would open up a, a, humanita- like a humanitarian corridor, essentially, for cargo ships to sail, sail through in defiance of Russian warnings. Um, but on Sunday, the last Sunday, a Russian warship fired warning shots, um, and then it boarded. Uh, a Turkish-owned cargo ship that was sailing through the Black Sea to ports along um, the Ukraine's uh, Danube River.
0: This seems like a recipe for disaster. I mean, are we going to see the, the Black Sea open up, essentially, as a, a new front in the war between Russia and Ukraine?
1: Yeah, it's hard to say. Um... For you know, the grain deal was in effect for over over a year, um, and that meant that the Black Sea had been relatively peaceful, relatively peaceful, not peaceful, but compared to other theaters of battle in in the east of Ukraine. Um, but now it's quickly and very quickly militarizing. Um, that's a big problem because there are tons and tons of civilian ships passing through the area. Um, And also, there are other countries on the Black Sea. Let's not forget, it's just not Russia and Ukraine. You've got Turkey, Romania, Bulgaria, all members of NATO. Um, So you'd have to think Russia will feel constrained by not wanting to trigger the mutual defense clause of NATO and turn this into a much broader war. Um, I saw an interview with uh, a top former NATO general, um, James Stavridis, who said that if... Instance like the one that happened earlier this week keep happening, and that was the the, the Russian warship um, firing warning shots. If that keeps happening, NATO may be forced to protect the merchant vessels in the area with combat aircraft overhead. And he said possibly NATO warships and escort. On one hand, it's important not to catastrophize and claim everything leads to a new world war, um, because I think that's what the Kremlin wants the world to believe. But... It's also important not to just internalize the Russo-Ukraine war because it's been going on for so long as the status quo. Uh, you know, there are still things, still things that could make this whole situation a lot worse. Um, you know, history guides us in in that respect. So I think it's it's important to kind of balance our views on that.
0: Damn you, historical contingency. <laughs> <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by Atlas. Atlas is the only map company that lets you add your custom route to your personalized map. The process is simple. Select your trip type, style your map, and move and edit your labels. Then select your size and material type and submit your order. Atlas is the best place for simple, beautiful, and customizable maps. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. Alright, welcome back, John. You're hitting... Three for you're you're hitting a thousand. I mean, this is a Babe Ruth type. Babe Ruth couldn't couldn't hold a candle to what you're doing right now. <laughs> but this one is bound to trip you up because we're we're on to the Middle East, uh, where the foreign minister of Iran just made a visit to Saudi Arabia on Thursday. I mean, can you even imagine saying that sentence uh, a year ago?
1: Uh, no, I can't. I'm just impressed by your ability to mix metaphors there with baseball and geopolitics. But um, <laughs> no, uh, no, the answer to your question is no. Uh, the last time the Iranian foreign minister traveled to Saudi Arabia was eight years ago, back in 2015, before um, Iran and Saudi Arabia, you know, who, to be clear, have been bitter rivals for, you know, decades. But the last visit was before um, the two countries formally broke ties back in 2016. Um, so things have been pretty bad between the two sides for a while. Um but a few months ago, in March, we awoke to the, I think, pretty shocking news that um, not only had Saudi Arabia and Iran, you know, committed to sort of improving ties, but it was China that uh, was the one that was brokering the deal. So
0: yeah, and just to put this into perspective and analogize a bit further, this is the geopolitical equivalent of. Um, you know, the road runner helping to broker a peace agreement between like Tom and Jerry.
1: <laughs> oh, I like that reference. I, I was thinking more like if Chelsea helped Arsenal uh, and Tottenham make friends with each other, but, uh, never, no, well, I better stop <laughs> the football references lest we drive our last listener running for the hills. But, um, more seriously, I think there's a good reason for each side to, to want to make nice here. Right. Um, Saudi Arabia, you know, peace with Iran, May ultimately mean peace with the Houthis uh, down south in, in Yemen. They've been launching rocket attacks against Saudi Arabia, which was a problem for the Saudis. So that would help them. Um, and for Iran, peace with Saudi Arabia means the you know a regional push to kind of normalize ties with Israel in order to balance uh, against Tehran. That that might slow down a little bit. Um, and it takes perhaps a little pressure off them to negotiate a nuclear deal. You know, I think Iran would prefer not to fight on multiple fronts if it can avoid it. So there is mutual benefit. Um, and obviously for China, bringing the two countries together, that helps them push back against American influence in the region. And it also showcases the idea that Beijing sees itself as a global deal maker in the way that I guess the U.S. kind of is. Um, You know, there's a lot more to it than that, but those are the basics. And I I think the key takeaway here is that the Iran-Saudi relationship is continuing to thaw. um, And that goes against perhaps what a number of experts might have predicted when the deal was struck back in March.
0: Terrific, terrific work. Well, unlike our previous four, (laughs) John, our, our last one uh, brings us to the Southern Hemisphere, specifically South America, and more specifically still to Argentina. You're a Northern Hemisphere expert, so this one will really trip you up. <laughs> am I a
1: Northern? Okay, that's uh, I'll, I'll wear that hat proudly. Um, let's give this a go then. Um, well, you've got to get used to saying a new name, Ethan, and that is Javier Millet.
0: Javier Millet. Yes, and
1: I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I think I am. <laughs> um, but he is the man who uh, had just won Argentina's open presidential primary last Sunday, and he's now expected to be a top competitor in the presidential elections in October. Somehow, Ethan, October is about six weeks away, which I'm, you know, sort of offended by, really. My horror at the rapid passing of time notwithstanding, um, here's how I would kind of describe uh, Javier Malay. He has the populist political instincts of Donald Trump, the same kind of vein-popping rhetorical style of Ric Flair in full flight. That's one for the wrestling fans. Um, and I think, frankly, the very brave hairdo of a, of a Neil Diamond, sort of circa 1975.
0: Brave is the right word. Yeah, right. Maybe yeah. we need to
1: put a link in the show notes so that folks can see what Neil Diamond looked like in the in the 70s. But um, I think that's a pretty accurate description. Look, I, more serious. I don't think, uh, Mr. Malay ever tended, intended to kind of be as successful in this primary as he was. He, he he did almost twice as well in the election as I think the polls suggested he would. Um, he has a, a laundry list of fairly novel populist ideas. You know, he wants to re, uh, replace the, the peso with the dollar, abolish Argentina's central bank. He said that climate change is a lie, you know, that, that old chestnut. Um, and he wants to deregulate Argentina's tightly, uh, tightly controlled gun market. So, you know, he's kind of all over the place, but populist, populist is the way to
0: describe him. So, so why did Argentine voters pick him last week?
1: Yeah, well, I think we probably should ask our Argentinian listeners to get in contact and tell us why. I know we have a few of them. Um, so get in touch and, and, and if you've got a take about why he was able to outperform the polls by so much, my very general guess would be that Argentinians are kind of fed up with their political system. Um, you know, inflation in Argentina has soared over a hundred percent this past year. Its currency is, you know, basically worthless. Its sovereign debt is through the roof, and and with all of that, the poverty rate is skyrocketing as well. And let's be honest, just generally, its its economy has been a kind of a dumpster fire for a, for a while now. I think for over two decades, the country's been led by the same two parties, the the voters who backed um, Mr. Malay, Javier Malay, they're kind of expressing their frustration with the status quo and a desire for a new direction, no matter really who's directing it, um, which sounds familiar, right? Um, But to be clear, it's not certain that he's going to win. I want to make that very clear. These were just primaries. Um, And when outside candidates overperform in primaries, it often can drive the more mainstream voters to vote in general elections because they don't want to, you know, what they see as a crazy person getting elected, um, but he certainly has a good shot. And again, we have very recent historical um, examples to draw from here. Um, but in any event, no matter what happens, we'll be hearing more from him in the coming
0: months. I'm sure. Well, John, I, I cannot tell you how corrected I stand. This was brilliant, really. Your magnum opus. Congrats. <laughs>
1: Thanks, <Ethan. laughs>
0: And that's going to do it for me. By the way, one thing you might not know about me. I was a two-time Geography Bee runner-up in middle school. So I wrote a little geography quiz over at the International Intrigue newsletter for you today. Be sure to check it out to test your skills. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.